Hello, and welcome to Critical Bounce Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Bearden. Today, we're wrapping up our series with BIPOC creatives speaking about art in the context of colonialism, nationalism, and the illusion of white supremacy. Our guest today is Barrette S. McCauley, who is a multidisciplinary artist, curator, and writer from Jamaica and Sierra Leone. Her research and visual arts practice engage themes of belonging, identity performance, illegibility, love, memory, and myth-making. Barrett is currently the inaugural curatorial fellow at On the Boards Performing Arts Theater in Seattle, has exhibited and published nationally and internationally, receiving recent artist grants from the Vermont Studio Center Residency, Shunpike Arts, and Four Culture. Art and writing publications include Feminist Media Histories, UNESCO Courier, Of Note, Musier Magazines, and the World Policy Journal. Her curatorial work includes Elusive Self at Taller Bariqua Gallery in New York and Exploring Passages in the Black Diaspora at Photographic Center Northwest. Barrett was the creator and organizer of the MFON in Seattle program, in which she facilitated exhibition partnerships with MFON women. Fry Art Museum, Jacob Lawrence Gallery, and the Photographic Center Northwest, following the legacy work of Adama Delphine Fawundu and Leila Amatula Bahrain to feature Black women photographers from Africa, the Caribbean, Europe, and North America. Barrett's awards include a 2019 Simpson Center Research Cluster Grant as founder of Black Cinema Collective, where she curates screenings, watch parties, and panel discussions alongside co-programmers Savita Krishnamurthy and Mateo Ochoa, focusing on African and Afro-diasporic films. BCC functions as a project of Imagine Evolve, an interdisciplinary arts incubator Barrett has been tending to since 2010. Barrett was named a 2019 Audenberg Winans Fellow for African Studies and is the recipient of the 2020 Champion of Seattle Arts Award. She also serves as the Art Liaison Program Manager at Henry Art Gallery, University of Washington. I have such gratitude for Barrett for engaging in this conversation with me. We discuss living a multiplicitous life and the institutional lie that you have to focus on one thing or be branded a failure. Interrogating the process of critical dialogue. What populations are still being overlooked in the art world? the influence of the Black Portlanders Project, working with artists who are creating work to speak to some of the traumas but not define ourselves by these traumas, how institutional racism creates a challenge in even putting together a show that is about Black people, tokenism in cultural institutions, the invisibility of power, interrogating terms like white privilege and white supremacy to unroot the mythologies of whiteness, and so much more. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. It is so great to finally do this. We've been trying to do this for a while now. Things happen when they're supposed to happen. I feel like this is just when it was supposed to happen. We were, we were supposed to have like the election and insurrection and (laughs) oh my god oh my god we were supposed to wait for all of that apparently 
and then have our bits of commentary before the inauguration. Lord help us. Uh, uh, I just, you know what I was thinking the other day, which is really sad, but I was, and I was laughing about it to myself, which just shows kind of my sense of humor that people kept making fun of Trump's inauguration, how there were not actually very many people there. And I was like, with the pandemic though, like nobody's going to be there, right? At Biden's inauguration. <laughs> it's just going to be like virtual, right? And there was no one there when <laughs> when there was the moment of the, the count, right? On right. The, but, there's yeah. also, but there's also thinking about the fact that there's nobody there because they're not allowing anyone to be there because of, of the, you know, battening down because of right. its activity. Yeah. That, that's also, you know, yeah, part of it. Put into the crowd, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. It's just all of it all at once on the table. Woo. I know. Feast of change. Oof, 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 oof. So, yeah, apparently we needed to wait for all of these things. So, anyway, welcome. Thank you again for being here. Um, so, the topic of the show is like technically, it's the segment is about colonialism white supremacy and nationalism and instead of like which is so on point (laughs) which is so which is so on point I mean honestly those those are the thing the reason that I decided to even have a segment about about these things in particular is because every other thing that we were talking about in the global issues whether it was like you know, people being harassed for their gender or sexuality or um, or the environment or, you know, just any of any of these other topics that we were talking about, one or all of them came into play. And I was like, OK, well, let's just talk about this. But I didn't want to make it like, let's, you know, have like a lecture about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> who wants to listen to that? Uh, so I wanted to talk to black indigenous and people of color because like, I feel like a lot of white people are just now waking up to this for some reason, like this, that these things are issues. Um, some white people have known for a while, but not, not apparently not a lot of us, not enough of us. And so, and also I don't want to, I don't really want to talk. I don't want to hear white people's thoughts about these things. Like if I'm going to talk to white people, it's about like, these are the things that we need to do. But if I want to, you know, broach these subjects, then I want to hear what, what people actually are like doing with their lives. Having already like lived with it, dealt with it, known, known about it, whatever. So that is, that is. We're going to have to unpack that intro as well. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) oh so much food so much so much yeah so we'll see what happens yes i look forward what a journey what an adventure was the very act of this because if i could just say listening of course i have listened to a couple of the episodes you know ever since you invited me on i Mm -hmm. i went on here and there and and you know because we have um shared colleagues in common and so yes um just listening to Nagara's and I listened to um, Bettina Judd and a couple other episodes and just thinking gosh there's so many black women on this podcast series yeah. and just the very the very act of having discourse a discourse between 
on, on all these the topics that you've had with black women and white women having these conversations in and of itself is its yeah. own political interventionist act that is so delicate right and yeah. so daring um and and i think challenges the idea of should we be listening to white voices i think i think the very idea of what discourse even means is something that we we still need to examine in terms of who's doing the talking, who should be doing the talking, and all of the listening that everybody needs to do. That's my, yeah. my opinion, quite frankly. <laughs> I, I can agree with that. I you know? With that. I mean, I think, I think where mostly where I'm coming from with it is that my first instinct, just as a person in general, as someone who, you know, reads, reads a lot and loves scholarship and loves to get into discussions about things that are academic, right, (laughs) Um, is to, like, really get into it and share my opinion. And then, like, I feel like a lot of these things, though, is, one, it's not academic. It's people's actual, like, lived experiences, right? Right. And it's not my, it's not necessarily my lived experience. Like, I can sympathize, I can empathize, and I can see that something's not right, but it's not my experience. So I can't speak to that in the same way that somebody else can. And so having a conversation about it, I definitely should not do, be doing most of the talking. <laughs> I should definitely be listening. And I feel like that is, uh, that that's something that I wanted to do with this whole segment. So hopefully that will come across and we'll see. We'll see what happens. But And I feel that. I agree with that, that part. Yep. Yeah. Fingers. So fingers crossed. <laughs> that's what that's the attempt here. We'll see if it actually works, but my that's my attempt. I would really love to hear about your sort of art journey. Um because it's been you've done a lot of really amazing things. You do a lot of different things with within art and outside of art and you've been a lot of places. So I would just I would love to hear about sort of how you got started and where you got started and how you ended up here doing what you're doing now. Gosh, that I gotta I gotta admit that question always makes me nervous because <laughs> I'm still I'm all I always feel like I'm just starting. Let me say that first and foremost. Um, even though I'm at a point and at an age in my life where I am, I'm recognizing that I'm, I'm not an ingenue age, nowhere near it now. And I, I, it's harder to make a claim like that, but it really is how I feel all the time. And I think in part because I'm constantly giving myself permission to try new things. Yeah. And if you're always trying new things, you always feel like a student, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I by no means hold myself as an expert, but I do understand that the intersectional knowledges that I've gained from these experiences um, um, are, are forcing me to try and change how nervous I get about a question. <laughs> how, I mean, how is that your journey? <laughs> um, so, but that's yeah, okay. It's I okay to feel nervous about it. <laughs> You know, I mean, uh, yeah, it, it's fair because all these things do influence where, 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 where we are right now, right? All, right. Our, all our steps on our journey. So, I mean, giving the, sh- I'll try and give a shorthand of just um, 
I mean, you can take as long as you like, honestly. It's you're, it's open to you. It's whatever you feel comfortable with as far as And like, what I can detail. remember. And yeah, what and what... <laughs> um, There's okay. that too. <laughs> I started, I started in... I started on the stage. That's where my, my, my relationship with the arts started um, in, in, in a public way, I'm going to say, because privately my, my, my leanings towards being a creative, um, um, having a creative existence was, you know, I, I drew a lot. I, I was constantly writing as a child constantly singing and constantly dancing in the privacy of my own room. And I grew up as an only child. I do have half siblings, but um, who are all much older than I am. Um, but I grew up as an only child. And so I entertained myself with dancing, singing and writing in journals. I, I started writing in a journal when I was like six years old and, you know, I'm, I, 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 and I haven't stopped. So I have <laughs> cupboards full of journals. Um, and, but in terms of like publicly doing, doing um, any kind of creative work, I, you know, I started performing in like high school, you know, dance recitals and, <laughs> and then theater stuff. And, um, and then I got like recruited to do modeling as a teenager, which I ended up doing for many years. And from those years of, you know, walking on catwalks, I got plucked into um, a couple of TV shows and doing like, you know, TV commercials. And so I had like a TV life for a while. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't even know about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it's, 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 it's such a, it's such a, a person called it once a meandering <laughs> journey because I just, but I think that's the most fun, right? Like why is I, I do admire certain people who like know what they want to do they've known since they were a child and they were always on that path right I have that admiration too but I'm not one of those people no. I don't think I wanted to do these things I just no. was a very and I still am to this to a degree I'm 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 a, I'm a yes person I'm, yeah. I'm I'm all about trying things because why not well because you um, only have one life so like why not do as many things as you can and it would be, you know, just, it's just the idea of having some fun and seeking pleasure and, and doing and, and living a life that way long before I record, I even understood it to be some kind of political act of resistance. It was just how I was living <laughs> at the time. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I, I just, you know, when opportunities would come along, I would say yes, because I thought it'd be interesting to do. And so, and it, and it was, you know, I, um, and I and I'm glad for those experiences because they still serve me now. Um, you know, just in terms of knowing how to to work in a professional setting um, on a film set or a TV set or um, working in radio, I did that for a bit as well. And so these are all things that I did when I was quite young. And then when I moved to the states, um, to where were you college. before that? Huh? Where were you before you moved to the States? Oh, yes, I guess I haven't said that part, have I? Um, I, I was in Jamaica. Um, so I'm, I'm actually born in Sierra Leone, West Africa, in Freetown, Sierra Leone. Um, mm -hmm. And my, um, my parents moved us over to Jamaica when I was a, a young baby in arms, practically. And, um, and yeah, and so I, I spent my formative years there. We, we did move um, between Jamaica and England um, occasionally over the years because um, my father had a, 
uh, legal practice in um, in the UK as well. Um, so if they had to work on long cases, they'd take me with them. Um, but for the most part, my formative years were in Jamaica. So I, I feel I'm, I very much feel like a Jamaican, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, as, you, as you would, right? Because you spent so much time there. So, so much time. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's my yard. And so, um, yeah, so this is where a lot of that work happened. And then, you know, I would travel for modeling gigs um, to the U.S. and within the Caribbean. Um, but for the most part, the work was in Jamaica. And then I came to the States to, um, to model and also to go to college. And, um, and that was when it became a decision-making time. It was when I came to the U.S. It's like, okay, well, what am I going to study if I go back to school? And um, I decided to, um, to get my first degree in theater arts, which I did in New York at Marymount Manhattan College, which is a mm -hmm. small liberal arts college that has produced many a, a well-heeled actor and actress on, the, on Broadway stages and on television, including Laverne Cox, who graduated a year before me. <laughs> That's exciting. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, I remember seeing them before their transition, you know, on the main stage at Marymount. I actually posted about this just recently on, on my Instagram because Anne Ranking was doing some workshop yeah, there. Um, I saw I, that. Yeah, when I, it was when I was touring the school to try and decide when if I was going to go there to NYU because I got accepted in the program there as well. But I wanted a, like, really tiny liberal arts experience yeah. where the classes would be really small which and, is not nyu which is not NY, and, and NY. i mean i was glad that i got accepted but i was intimidated to be honest i mean looking yeah. back on it now i'm like was that the right thing to do i don't know but the stats for the theater program at, at marymount were really competitive and then i saw her in one of the studios and i'm like that's it because <laughs> <laughs> i was kind of you know in my childhood i was obsessed with her and you know any any dancer of of repute I, I followed closely as a child. So um, yeah, so that's how, that was the beginning of my artistic career was just being in the theater world and, um, and all the years that I was living in New York, I, I acted with small theater companies, danced with, the, I ended up going back to school to study dance. And then I danced with theater, with dance companies. I also worked in tech because I just wanted to try new things, right? So it's the continuing <laughs> passage of this. So, um, I, but they all kind of go together because you need, these days you need tech skills in order to do sort of any other kind of art unless listen, you're able to like pay other people to do that for you. It's incredible. I mean, this is why I'm like, I'm, I laugh at myself when I say I'm, I'm nervous about these questions because the nerves really come from this very, um, this edict of, of this institutional edict, especially in the Commonwealth countries that are, you know, handed down the very Br the British structure of education, which is right. you must know exactly what you're going to do. And it must be one thing. Right. And if you're doing too many other things, it means you're flitting about. It means that you're, um, you're not focused. They call it, you a dilettante. That you're, yes. And you're going to live a life of failure. And all of that is a form of institutionalization that definitely sits yeah. in me. And I hold it as a, as, as a, I still hold it as this kind of self-conscious thing of I am, I'm being almost anarchistic to, to live a multi-hyphenated life. 
Yeah. And I know that's not true because if I really believed it, I would have repressed myself. But at the same time, I still, there's a conflict around it, you know? Well, because I think you still, because I actually, I have done a lot of the same things that you have in that I have had many careers I've had many and I have many hobbies and I've done a lot of things in a lot of different places Mm -hmm. and I don't feel bad about it but other people have made me feel bad about it because they have those expectations right of like well if you wanted to do this why didn't you just go to school for this then and then keep studying it until blah 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 and I'm like because I also wanted to learn about other things yeah other things I don't want to just do one Thing. but so I think there's you know the societal expectation that absolutely this yeah. goes to the theme of everything you know because this is part of colonialism ah, um, absolutely you know is is sort of trying to limit how we express ourselves and and also to make us believe that we're operating within a scarcity model where there's just not going to be enough for you if you try to do more than one thing and and you certainly are not given power to create enoughness for yourself you know so there's all this that that's gone on and how I've how I am still learning how to talk about all of this without having nerves (laughs) yeah that makes sense to me I think you're doing very well so far though (laughs) (laughs) you're doing great (laughs) I I don't want to make it sound like I'm insecure about it because I'm I don't have any regrets (laughs) around any of the stuff that I've done but just you know I feel I don't think of you as an insecure person like you and I have had like limited actual contact with one another but like in the contact that we have had you're you are very confident in what you do and and just how you are so I don't think of you as insecure. <laughs> oh, bless you. Yeah, no, it's definitely not that. But I do. I bring it up. I think because because of all the things we're examining about the effects of um, of societal, you know, edicts. Yeah. On our lives, you know, it's 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 one of those things that I, I like to openly examine. But yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much the background before visual arts became the main thing. Was just. I think working in tech probably created that shift into visual arts more than being a performer, right? Just the companies that I'd work with, particularly the dance companies that I was working with, I did as a makeup artist for a while as well, um, for a decade actually. And and I did for fashion, but also for for like theater productions. And then I started doing lighting and sound design for for productions as well. And once... I was doing all of that. It was like this natural shift into, okay, well, you know, I'm around artists all the time. I'll just start doing headshots for my fellow company members. And then (laughs) then I'm doing photography. And then, you know, I'm like, well, I have this history of modeling. I'm going to start doing fashion photography. Why not? I mean, I know the language, (laughs) you know, and then it's just like having fun with all of this. And then it just sort of shifted into um, what if I tried to, engage more serious themes with my photography instead of just making pretty pictures using it for just editorial purposes so it's just sort of everything just sort of fed into each other that way until now I'm 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 not quite sure where it's going (laughs) (laughs) I think well you know I guess I guess it's evolved into curating now and writing more um more publicly still on the journey and seeing where it goes which is really great and what what was the name of the show that you did was it M Fon or M F O N? It's M Fon. So it's M Fon. M Fon. 
can you talk a little bit about that show that you curated? Because I think that it goes really well with talking about your your own photographic work. Yeah. So there was this book that was published, a photographic journal that was published in 2017 by um, Adama Delphine Fawundu, who's a photo artist as well, and, um, and Leila Amatula Baran, who is a photojournalist. And they put out this book sort of in the spirit of viewfinders from the 80s, where they wanted to feature Black women photographers in a book. And so they self-published this this amazing (laughs) artifact or legacy to to black woman storytelling with a camera from around the world there were over a hundred photographers in it from around the world and I was one of the photographers in the book and um and this they did this shortly after I moved out here and when I was living here um in the early years of my living here I've been here now um just shy of five years, I, I, was, ha- I was struggling <laughs> with trying to find community here, not just artistic community, but, but com- Black community, community yeah. of color. Um, and Washington's a tough place for finding that if you're yeah. not from here. It's not like New York where whatever you're thinking, you can manifest it you know, in a 24 hours and find your people. It's no. not at all like that here. And so... Um, I reached back into my New York community and I was like, I said to them, you know, cause they were starting to do, um, like, um, exhibitions around, around the book. Um, and I just pitched to them. I said, you know, I think I'd, I'd love to curate or pitch a, um, I have nothing to lose. I don't know anybody here, so I don't have that kind of foot in the door thing, but I can do a cold proposal. Um, and see if we could do a series of shows out here featuring some photographers from the book, but I'd like to select um, photographers that I could feature from, you know, the PNW. Um, and it was an interest in doing work like that and, and to curate again, because I hadn't curated in a while, but also it was a way of, of trying to create community and find, find people who were doing um, interesting work here that I just had no other way of accessing. Right. And, um, and so they're like, yeah, you know, run with it, whatever you want to do. <laughs> you know, they were, they were very open. And so that's how that took form. And I just pitched pretty much every organization you could name in Seattle and Nagara Kadumu at the Fry agreed to jump on board and Terry Novak, who at the time was, She's the executive director of PCNW, Photographic Center Northwest now. But at the time, she wasn't. Michelle Dunmarsh was still um, the director mm-hmm. then. Um, and they they both were like, yeah, we're interested in this. And then Emily Zimmerman at Jacob Lawrence came on board um, shortly thereafter. And so we started building out the program. And so and I, I sort of pitched really hard to have the have this be an all-encompassing program that was that was named Umfan in Seattle, um, which at first was not like readily taken on by everybody because they were like, oh, well, you know, should use the full name Umfan Women Photographers of the African Diaspora, which was the name of the original book. And right. I'm like, too much of a mouthful. It was a book <laughs> that was doing very well every internationally and and nationally but for whatever reason nobody had ever heard of it in Washington and huh. like there's always going to be a byline explaining the history of the book 
But if we're trying to get everyone on board now and to help with marketing purposes, I'm like, I, I really pushed very hard for branding it I'm fun in Seattle. Um, which I feel really proud about that because I was like, oh my God, the amount of writing and appealing that I did around that one. But yeah, so that's how that program came to being. And then it was just deciding, you know, where we were going to do what shows. And it was just, it was definitely difficult. You know, it was definitely a difficult project. It took two years to get off the ground. And yeah, it was always to have multiple exhibitions. So we had an exhibition at, at Jacob Lawrence Gallery, um, which was Altar Prayer Ritual Offering, which that was an import of an exhibition that Adama, um, Delphine and Leila already had traveling through Photoville in New York and also Photoville in um, LA as container shows. And so this was the first gallery iteration of the show. And we didn't originally plan to import the show. It was supposed to be a different show that we were going to, an original show we were going to put up. But because of um, logistics with, um, with funding, we ended up bringing in an existing show. Mm-hmm. But an existing format of a show in that it was the altar show. But to get around the funding logistics, I ended up changing the show to being a, a video art installation. So all of the artists that were in the show were all of the works that were in the show were all video art and and sound installations. And one of the artists who was in the show sadly died before we could open. So we ended up having an altar for her work, Valda Nogueira from Brazil, photojournalist from Brazil, who had worked with and hung out with in Brazil just a year before. So it was really wild to be curating her a year later and she wasn't with us anymore. It was really eerie because while I was installing that show I was getting Facebook memories and Instagram memories of us posting stuff in Brazil exactly a year before he was just tapping you on the shoulder like (laughs) yeah it was and the thing is when we met I mean we met under completely different circumstances from um it wasn't I was on a human rights research trip with the with the human rights commission and she was a photographer, an assigned photographer to record um, the state visit of the um, Commission of Human Rights from DC. Mm-hmm. And that's how we met. And then we ended up realizing that we were both involved with Unfun, that we were both photographers with Unfun. And, and then fast forward a year later, you know, I'm curating her work and she's, she was no longer with us. So it was just a really strange, mystical, kind of thing but Delphine and Layla were very generous in that they they just gave me full carte blanche they're like this is your vision do whatever you you want with it so um there was a lot of creative and intellectual labor that went into that show to sort of expand on the idea of how they were doing alter before and so I was able to put um, artists in the show that weren't from the book, you know, like Patrona Morrison from Jamaica and Deborah Jack from St. Martin, Tiffany Smith, um, who is, I mean, incredible artist um, from the Caribbean, and Jamila Clark, who's from the PCNW, from, um, based in Portland, who does a lot of speculative and imaginative conceptual work. So that was at Jacob Lawrence. And then we did a panel at um, Fry Art Museum talking about the book, talking about the history of all of our work, um, trying to, you know, 
foreground artists of color and also just talking about our own challenges and being artists of color. Um, Michelle Dunn Marsh was on that panel along with Delphine, Layla, and myself. And um, that was moderated and hosted by Nagara Kadumu. And then the final closing was Exploring Passages in the Black Diaspora that I curated at PCNW. And that had a, a completely different roster of artists, um, 11 artists from from Africa, from South America, Car- the Caribbean, and, and also Seattle. Lalita McKill from Seattle and Nadia. My brain is like freezing right now. <laughs> it always happens when you have to name people and you're, and there are people that you even talk about often. <laughs> and you're like, oh, wait. Yeah, but it was, I mean, it was such a, that show was also so Oh, God, it was so satisfying to work on that show because of all of the different points of views that these women were bringing to bear in a geography that I knew had not engaged these kinds of discourses from Black women. I mean, it, it was just really sharp to do that work here. It, would, it meant something different from doing the same work if we were in New York, yeah. where the vocabularies exist there and these discourses are very active at the surface and at, and at great depths there, but they're not really here. They're still kind of novel here, or at least that's how I'm experiencing. Which is really strange to me because there is a huge, we have a huge African diasporic population here. Exactly. So, like, so many people. I went to one. I used to live in the the central district, and uh, and also I went to Seattle Central before I transferred to Smith. And like, most of the people that I went to school with were were from the African diaspora. Like, their parents had moved here as immigrants, and they were like second generation. And some of them were first generation, but those were most of the people that I went to school with. And we have a huge, huge, huge diasporic population here. So that's really interesting to me that like it shows up in some places and not in others, like not necessarily in the art world. Well, this is thank you for making that distinction, because this these statements and and I write about this quite extensively, too, in the catalog for this program, which is it's not that. There's absolutely no no way that I would um, assert that there that these communities aren't here. One can visibly see that they're here, but accessing them or knowing where we can all gather was what was the challenge for me as a newcomer to the city. Right. And there's something I certainly don't know the shorthand of this geography because I'm not from here. So I didn't know what the entry points were or what caused there to be this um this line of separation this this kind of segregation that exists between communities of color here and that, and again this is an outsider point of view but but having lived in other places and lived in other cities in the country this place was the hardest to penetrate as a person of color and to find other people like me yeah. <laughs> you know um I've heard that I've heard that from other people who who are black or people of color who have moved here. I mean Bettina Judd who who you mentioned earlier who's been on the show that was part of what she was saying also is like finding finding the the kind of community that she needed it was really hard work to yeah. do it here and I can see that and even like even people who are who 
like even like random Midwestern white people who move here are like, it's really hard to make friends in Seattle. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it, exactly. it took me a really long time. It took me like a year to meet people and then become friends with them. Like after that, like it was, it's a really different and there's like, like a, like a myth that it's, it's a weird ghosting tone. Yeah. <laughs> and I think part of it's the weather. And then there's like, a lot of the the quote unquote original settlers are like from Norway and and like that region of the yeah, world. Yeah, Norway. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so there's like a whole mythology about how it's that sort of the Nordic culture how people are cold and not inviting. And so you're, you know, that's, that's why it is the way it is here. And I'm like, I mean, I guess, but it's like, you know, it's 2020. <laughs> we have people who have moved here from all over. So I don't know why it's like that for, for a lot. Oh, of well, I, I, I mean, I'm gonna, I, I have to wrap a couple things from this, this show, but I have a, I have some theories. I really yeah. have some very strong <laughs> about why this, because I am really quite fascinated by it. I mean, it's been painful, but I'm still fascinated by it. Yeah. But like one, one of the artists that was in Exploring Passages within Black Diaspora at PCNW is Intisar Abioto, who's actually from Portland. And I, I was following her work a couple of years before I even reached out to her to be a part of the show. And she is the founder and photographer behind Black Portlanders, which I don't know if you've ever heard of that project. I highly recommend anyone listening, please go and check out Black Portlanders. Yeah. It was a method that she used because in Oregon, it's even more intense finding <laughs> Well, it was, I mean, Oregon was like founded as a white utopia and that is correct. Like not, it's not yeah. that different outside of Portland and even in Portland is like a little scary. I mean, that state fought to keep, keep itself white it was, you oh. know, in, in their law books. So um, she went about um, doing a lot of research to figure out what, where, where the black communities were and just walking into them with her camera and going, I'm going to meet black people somehow. And this is how I'm going to do it. <laughs> Start a project and go, I'm trying to document the black people who exist here. <laughs> I'm just going to take pictures of all of you to prove that we are here. And, um, and it, it's developed into this amazing archive um, of, of, of black citizens in Oregon um, and in Portland. And so that made me think about, okay, well, I, I mean, I've never really thought this through before until right now as I'm seeing it, but I'm wondering if on some kind of subliminal level um, into SARS um, sort of activist work in that might've inspired me to do this, this, um, you know, this proposal to try and find community through this curatorial journey yeah because i mean you have to do something to try and pull people to the same watering hole with you you know and a lot of the work that that all of the artists who are featured in the show and in in the whole program have done this in one way or another where they're they're trying to represent or speak to the spiritual practices and the communities around the spiritual practices of the of the diaspora of the african diaspora um, and also speak to some of the traumas, but not define ourselves by these traumas. 
Mia McNeil, who, who is based here in Seattle, she also works at PCNW. She has a series um, talking about, well, addressing the issue of women's, black women's hair and all of the politics around our hair and people thinking that they can touch our hair while not having right. relationships with us as human beings. Right. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it was very heartening to work with them and to look at their work, to talk about their work with them probably more so than the public facing act of doing a show. There was the communing around making those shows that it was ministry for my heart, really, even though the infrastructures around the show were very difficult. And I learned more about, you know, institutional racism and discrimination through trying to do these shows, not with the directors that I was working with, but just within the structure of getting a show up that's about Black people. It's hard. Yeah hard to get anything funded through traditional institutions that is not a white man in art. I mean, this is a fact. And when you think about the depth of, that was one of the things that I'm still, if I'm, if I am, if I really just am fully transparent about that. And, and actually I was a little (laughs) quite transparent about it in a piece that I wrote with, um, I don't know, do you know Kimi Adiyami who, um, who founded Black Embodiment Studio? That's oh, I follow I follow that, but I don't know I don't know them personally. But oh I my goodness, please get to know what she's doing with Black Embodiment Studio because yeah. that is very that's also addressing a, um, a, a gap right here in Seattle in terms of trying to create not only a writer space that responds to black art and black artists at, critically, um, but also to produce a, a, a space that is solely dedicated to that so there's a journal that goes along with um the the art this arts incubator that she started arts writing incubator that she started um that and every year she puts out a journal called a year in black art um to cover you know various writing responses to um exhibitions focusing on black artists around the city and um, I've written in it a couple of times in the last piece she had me write about this curating experience for Omphon in Seattle. Mm. And boy, did I bitch about a few things. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like I can speak it now because I put it out there. And it's, it's, it's astonishing, the point you just made. It's astonishing when you are living the reality of knowing that if you were curating or if you were a white curator, if I was a white woman curator or a white male curator and I was doing a show about white artists, I, I do believe firmly that I would have had a much easier time funding the shows. Yeah, I mean, funding I agree the with you. For the shows, funding every aspect of the shows. And I was pretty lucky in terms of, you know, within those limited structures, I was still lucky in terms of the kind of support I did get from the people that I worked with, but we should not have had to struggle and they should not have had to struggle as much as they did in order to help these shows to go up, not with the kind of sophisticated and complex works that these artists were bringing to bear. Right. You know? And I think like a lot of people who, who maybe don't spend a lot of time in institution or don't, maybe don't work in institutions because we all spend time in institutions. We can't get away from them. But I think they don't see how institutions use things like art to reinforce the ideas that we already have. And Mm -hmm. so institutions supporting, quote unquote, too many 
uh, artists of color or shows about artists of color or shows that, you know, don't reinforce this idea of like white American men as artist genius, like whatever, um, this, this like mythology that they've built through art history. I think that people don't, some people see it obviously, but like, I think like the general public who just likes to maybe go see art, like they don't think about it that way. And so, and I, and I think it's kind of dangerous for us to not talk about it. So I'm really glad that you had a rant about it <laughs> in a publication. <laughs> you know, and it, it was, and, it, and you know, I, I have to give a shout out to Kimi and just say, God, what a, what a, what a therapeutic process that was because I didn't even, I didn't even really want to write it. I was, I was resistant to writing it at first because I hadn't fully processed it for myself. And then every time I try to go there, I realized, wow, I'm holding a little trauma around this. Yeah. This is amazing. I'm actually holding trauma. Hmm. How do we process that? <laughs> and it, you know, it was good. And, and then it was really good for me to organize my thoughts around. And I was writing it at the time when, you know, I just wrote it this past summer. So it was during the time when the world was hot after George Floyd's most barbaric murder that we all unfortunately had to witness and all the BLM protests that were happening on our streets around the world. And so there was that backdrop, that sensory backdrop of, of rage and, and despair and disappointment and numbness like all of it happening you know in different temperature swirls about my body <laughs> having to write through that so it was it was interesting but I'm so glad that I did because some things needed to be said about what does it mean for an institution to be reflexive yeah. now when they're being called out in every corner of the planet and how, what does it mean to actively be reflexive and changing the structures of your institution rather than responding to the moment performatively. Right. Because it looks good right now. Exactly. Because it's so easy to be performative in the, our, you know, technological day and age. Um, the Whitney. The Whitney. <laughs> but yeah. everywhere though, not just the Whitney. I know. Not, not, not just the Whitney. I just, it, the Whitney immediately came to mind because of that show that they put together that some of the artists dropped out of, but. but They've just, been making mistakes for a while too, eh? Yeah, they have. <laughs> But that was what immediately popped into my mind when I thought about performative wokeness yeah. uh, on the part of museums. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's because I think because the headlines were the biggest around them. And then, yeah. of course, they also there there was also a um, quite a bit of headlines around them the year before when Simone Lee, you know, took a critical white writer to task about what they had to say about the um the biennial that featured a lot of black and young artists. Yeah. So they've been like in the headlines and then there's the Sackler stuff around Guggenheim, you know, like all of, yeah. all of it, all but, of it. It, but, but these are the big headlines, but where I think it matters equally as much as the people who do the institutions that don't hold big headlines. Cause they are made, they make the exact same moves all the time and yeah. are still making them even after George Floyd and the BLM protests. They're scared. I still get emails from Smith. So I'm still on their mailing list for certain emails from like the president. And so the president sending out emails about Black Lives Matter, about like any of these events that have gone on, right? It's always so placating 
saying nothing, doing actually nothing, but it's, it's the equivalent of like thoughts and prayers, but we don't want to offend, you know, the GOP or we don't, we don't want to offend white supremacists. Like they don't want to offend anyone when they're actually like offending everyone who actually stands against all, <laughs> against all of those things. So yep. I, I don't know. I don't know what institutions are thinking, or I don't know what the people within institutions are thinking right now. Because an, an institution is not just a monolith. It's made up of the people on the board. It's made up of, you know, all of the figureheads like presidents and, and educators or the people who work there. And so I don't know, I don't know what they're thinking at this moment. I would love to know. I mean, I think that, I mean, this is, <laughs> whew, this is where, <laughs> this is where I told you we were going to get into it. It's, it's so thick because this is where it gets really complicated right I think that people I don't think that it's that people aren't thinking necessarily they're terrified because there are no imaginative or um or beta models even of how to change these systems because nobody ever really thought that they would have to do that work yeah I mean, I think there are other models, though. They're just not models that they give any value to. So, like, looking at indigenous models, like, indigenous from around the world, not just, like, indigenous people who live in in what is now the United States, but, like, indigenous people from around the world, not each and every group, obviously, but, like, a lot of groups have collective forms of education and other ways of looking at things other than the way this sort of like top down, get as much money as you can, hold as much power as you can, and be the expert about everything. Right. Yeah. So other than that, so they do exist. It's just like, it's not valued. That definitely not. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting in, in the same breath, it's interesting to note how many black woman in particular well you know people of color and indigenous people are getting are 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 getting meaningful positions of um of influence um in in museums now i mean look at you know guggenheim just naming naomi beckwith their new director and um chief curator which is great which is just amazing. Um, we did so many amazing things at MCA, like uh, so many, like the MCA was just incredible. So I, I don't know, as a friend said, maybe I'll go to the Guggenheim now. Cause yeah. Were. <laughs> but I mean, these are, these are the things that are, I find really, you know, I find re- very interesting to watch because it's very, I mean, obviously, it's incredibly encouraging for when you see some organizations and, mus- and institutions doing this. I mean, the, the David's Werner Gallery ha- has an all um, all black staff now, which yeah. is huge. You yeah. know, yes. It's, I mean, there's just so many there's so many influential positions that are being filled now by people of color, 
But then where we get, where things get complicated, I mean, case with Naomi Beckwith, I mean, you know, everybody is deserving in terms of their, the experience they bring to bear on these positions, but there's still the overall structure that we're working in that, and this is that, this is what concerns me and interests me as a, you know, as a cultural studies scholar, right? is if if they are operating within, and we know this has happened with tokenism in the past, right? So if they're operating within a system where they are not given the latitude that they actually need to change the system, then they become part of those power structures of expertise Mm -hmm. where they have to gatekeep as their predecessors or white predecessors have. Right. And that's, that, is, that is the tipping point, I believe, that we are at now and that I'm very interested to see, you know, what happens. Because there have been Black scholars, Black writers, Black, um, black cultural actors in positions of, quote unquote, power right. before. And here we are. <laughs> here we are still. still. Here we are still. So what I'm interested in is I'm glad to see these positions happening, these very public positions happening. What I want to start hearing about is more Black people and more Indigenous people being put on boards. Yes. That's what I'm, you know what I'm saying? That's where a lot of those decisions are made. Like, wrong, curators and directors make decisions. They do. Major decisions. But sometimes they... well, not even sometimes, all of the time, they still have to work within the confines of what the board says. That's correct. And this is, this is where I'm, I'm at, you know, this is where I'm, 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 I'm concerned. You know? I think it's a valid concern. And, and, you know, I've talked about this on a different episode, but most people don't understand that in order to be on a lot of boards, I'm not going to say everywhere because I don't know each and every board across, you know, every museum in the, in the United States or the world, but in most of them, you have to make a significant donation. And I mean, like, well, this is okay. Now we're now we're unpacking. Yeah, like <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars in we're order to sit on a board. Yeah. And so then, what kind of decisions are you going to make in order to maintain the power that you have? you know, your wealth and your position. So what kind of decisions are you going to make about the art that is displayed about the artists, about who is the director, about who is the curator, about what kinds of shows can be there? I mean, there, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes into. I mean, and, and you, you've, you've itemized and detailed exactly what, my, what I'm voicing in my concern there. Yeah. I have no question. I was just breaking it down for the people who maybe needed a little. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, not explaining it to you, <laughs> just breaking it down for everyone else. No, and, and I understand that. And I'm glad that you did that because that this is, we're talking about something that we do want, you know, our listeners to, to think about um, because the more we all know how these systems work, the more that we can collectively demand for them to change. But this is how complex and how invisible power is, right? Is that when you start looking through, you know, the the chart or the hierarchy of of an organization, 
there are a lot of quiet actors that actually have a lot of the power. Right. And this is this is when when you hear, you know, people like um, Michaela Cole, the fabulous writer of I May Destroy You, speaking, you know, very, very eloquently. I don't know if you saw her um, Max Hart, um speech about transparency. This is what we're talking. We're talking about we need all of these systems and all of the actors of power within these systems to be exposed and for the for us to know who they are so that they can be held accountable because as long as you have the secrecy of who um the board members are or who directors have to answer to then 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 an institution can't be held accountable not in any kind of real way absolutely absolutely you know and so, so there's that. And then there's also just, you know, coming back to the theme of your show here now, you know, white supremacy and colonialism and nationalism. That's right. Why is it that, that this, it's set up where you have to have money in order to play? Right. <laughs> and, I think, and I think that that is a valid question that we should be asking. I, you know, I, so I studied museology because I love museums, right? Mm-hmm. And the common theme, the common theme with several of us in my cohort was that we love museums and also we hate museums. And the reason that we hate museums is because of all of these invisible strings pulling everything, like all of these invisible people controlling all of, all of these things in order to maintain the power structures that are bad for everyone, but are especially bad for certain people. And that that is the only reason really why why we hate museums. I mean, they definitely also have some practices that are highly problematic and in some cases completely unethical. Um, some of their collecting practices. Um, but I mean, I, I love to go and look at art. I love to go in a building that's mostly quiet and be able to be just at one with art with other people who want to be there for the same reason. I I mean, that's just, that's such a beautiful thing to me. And so I love that. But what I also love is like people, people like Destiny Ross Sutton, who we're talking about museums, but she doesn't, she's not, she's not in a museum, but she is, um, she's a curator an advisor um, and a collector who recently curated Say It Loud. And it was basically 40 works uh, by 20 something um, like emerging black artists. But the the best thing about the show is that so usually you get all of these collectors coming out to buy these works of art and then keep them to sell because it's like a, an investment for them. So they want to keep it until the artist gets to a higher point in their career and then sell it off. And the artist never sees anything <laughs> of the higher price. And right. so basically she made people sign contracts that they were not allowed to do that. Um, and if they did sell it, then the artist got a cut of whatever they, they sold it for, which is amazing, right? And unusual because most people don't even know that that's how this works. I mean, when artwork is gaining more and more value and shifting through collector hands throughout the world, the artists, people don't realize that the artists have already been paid once. And they, it's not like the music business where you get royalties. 
or even the book or even like the publishing world like most writers don't make a lot but they usually do make some royalties but artists generally don't make royalty system around art and when you think about the art market and how much it is worth the art stock market yes it is it is unconscionable it's ridiculous I mean, and also, so to sort of tie that in together, what's really interesting about that is so a lot of people who sit on the boards of these museums and make decisions about who is going to star in the next show or like who who they should be bringing in or like, you know, pushing directors or curators to to feature certain things or people or subjects are also the people with the money who are buying art. And so they are driving up values of certain artists. So it's just, it's all, it's all a kind of a. And what was happening in the art market last year was pretty crazy in terms of, you know, some people whose values were, it's kind of like a housing bubble thing, right? Where that kind of um, that kind of uh, preferential structure of power pushing a particular artist can can balloon a value before on a work or an artist before that artist is in a practitioner sense or um, or functionally with a studio able to meet that demand right and you can actually affect an artist's journey professional and and creative journey and also their value in the market because yeah. of creating a bubble around it that can collapse yep you know it's just so it's and and that doesn't have anything to do with what the artist is making a decision about necessarily yeah. but because of the nature of how an artist works and lives and and the struggle I hate that word, but it's just true. The struggle behind living a, a life as an artist. If you have any opportunity that comes to you like that, where you can possibly fund your practice for a little longer now, because somebody's cutting you that kind of check here and now, it's hard to say no to that. Not everybody's Dave Chappelle. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> I mean, well, most people don't say no, or most people absolutely can't people say can't no. afford to. <laughs> yeah, they can't afford they cannot afford to whatever different you know subjective reasons that that they come to that decision with most people can't afford to especially in the united states where we don't have great funding for the arts we just don't don't. talk about it (laughs) it's because you know it's just night and day the value that is placed on the arts in um other parts of the world compared it's particularly in Europe. I mean, yeah. the funding that you see it immediately when you walk into a museum, the difference. Absolutely. And it's, don't get us wrong, listeners. We know Europe has its own problems. Um, ah, well, started these problems. Let's talk <laughs> exactly. about it. <laughs> exactly. The, the, where, the, where art history as a discipline was founded yeah. has a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, where but... colonialism started. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. The birthplace of colonialism. But here's the thing, though. They are they get they get the full blame. We're not going to mince words about this. They get the full blame for starting this mess. However, because they are a little older than this new imperial power here, that is the United States of America, (laughs) right? They therefore have had certain, clearly not all but certain evolutions with regards to um, what they value culturally, um, which is what we're talking about here, right? 
there's a certain value that they've always placed on and have continued to place on um, artistic practices and artistic exploration, which right. is why you see there are certain risks artists take in Europe that, that artists do not feel free to take here. Right. And you see it when you go to a gallery on any side street. The risks that artists take in Europe is astounding to me. Yeah. There's a reason why a lot of the writers from this side of the Atlantic went over there to develop their writing. There's a lot of reasons why there are a lot of American artists living in Berlin. You know right. what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, it's not even that the artists aren't free to do that because they could do that in the United States, but they would not be rewarded with a. They won't be rewarded. They won't be supported. Yeah. They would not be supported yeah. uh, because. Because institutions don't value it. Therefore, galleries in general are not going to value it unless it's like, you know, we have some small galleries who do more avant-garde things, but those are kind of few and far between. And And they're very privately funding and funded. And the people who are running those galleries are on their own. Right. Exactly. That space. Exactly. Um, and, And it's hard for them to get funding like grants and things like that, because people who give out grants they want a very specific plan for what you're going to do with their money. And they don't want you to, to do anything that's too out there generally. I mean, there are a few, there are a few grants that are like, you know, do what you want. Again, those are run by boards that are dictating, you know, that you're on message about a certain. And then, and again, I mean, of course, all these opportunities exist in the private sector in America, but we're talking about just as a cultural shorthand of what's embedded in the root of, of a cultural space or a ge- geographical space. Exactly. It's, it's not something that is valued in the same way. It is valued in a capitalistic way. Yes. Which is the difference. Well, right? I mean, you were talking about people going to Berlin. I know several people who moved to Berlin and they were like, you should come here. You would love it because I was like, I went out and they said, they were like, yeah, you should come. You could definitely like you run the podcast and you do other art stuff. You could come here as an artist. That's your job. But then you can only work in the arts. And I was like, wait a minute, what? I could get a visa? Yeah. Working in the arts? Are you kidding me? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's you imagine in the United States trying to do that. Well, I mean, one of the first things that the UK and the Europe did when COVID hit was to put aside a multi-billion dollar stimulus to pay artists so that they can continue to practice. One of the yeah. earlier fundings, relief fundings that happened in Europe. Yep. Whereas I mean, here, you know, not, not so much. I was I was on Facebook at the time, and I I since have left that cesspit. But <laughs> I was part of a group, and the group was it was something like artists and COVID relief funding, right? So that people could share um, links and just share resources if there were grants or you know there. Were, in the beginning, there were a lot of so- different sources for funding. It wasn't always a lot, but it was not from the government. But and there were people who were talking about you know, I do have a business. I am, you know, my art is my business, but since it's not consistent, they won't give me what I actually make. They will only give me like this much money. Definitely not. They don't support the arts that don't support our general mythology. Right. I mean, right. Yeah. It's tricky. It's, and, and, and so it sort of leaves the onus on the artist to be a, an, an effective 
and highly strategic hustler to try right. and figure out what are the privately funded or the few, the handful of state funded um, institutions where they can get at least, you know, some support. And, and, and that's not something that most, you know, art programs necessarily educate their students on either. No. Not everybody graduates from art. Some art programs, yes, but I would say just a handful, wouldn't you agree? That I mean, most art programs are not giving, no. giving a specific, you know, um, required class for their students to sit in and do the business of, of, of the art. Even what? then, I think it's more like running your own business, like working as a contractor in the United yeah. States. It's not like how to hustle and get grants from all of these sources and like find ways to get paid for your art. It's never that. Right. It's just like how to fill out, I don't know, an I-9 or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, yeah. it's not helpful. But what I was going to say is that, so I'm sure that you have had the struggle, as you said, you were writing about some of that struggle, but you seem to be doing a lot of really cool things anyway. So I would love to hear about like what came after Mfan and what are you up to now? Well, <laughs> what came that's a hard one too because what came after I I, I was working on that um, program while I was in grad school, right? Um, which was insane. <laughs> I can only imagine, honestly. Uh, yeah, it was just completely insane. And then of course those two things that were running side by side both ran into COVID. So this is all still very fresh for me. So, you know, um, well, the catalog just came out and I say just, and it's October, but yeah. time, time doesn't exist. It's not, it really doesn't exist because it does feel like just because <laughs> the truth of the matter is I've barely done the full um, marketing push on it either, which I'm probably just going to be doing quite a bit of in the spring when we hit a uh, one year anniversary of when the show closed. But we had to show, we had to close early in March because of COVID, of course. Had most of the run at PCNW. It was supposed to be a, a just shy of a three-month um, run. And I was still in school, so there wasn't any after. I, I still haven't had an after, I would say, you know, because... because trying to gather your thoughts. <laughs> well, I had to finish my, pro, my, my degree, so, you know, I had like, you know, a thesis and capstone work to do, um, which was also its own artistic project, right. um, performance project that I was doing. Yeah, I, you know, going back to what I was saying about why, why I engaged this, this whole thing and proposed this whole project in the first place, I didn't get to see that through necessarily. I met quite a few people at the openings and, you know, and at the artist talks that we had around the shows and so on. But I haven't had the follow through that is natural after where you have, you know, a new world you're stepping into where you can nurture those new relationships right. um, in person, grab a coffee, go to more shows, support other people's curatorial works or exhibitions. Like all of that hasn't happened because COVID. Right. So everything that's I have been doing a lot especially in the summer after I graduated, I got, you know, quite a few opportunities to do like panels and, and talks and things. But the weirdness about that is, is that while I'm grateful for all of those opportunities, it feels like, and it's the truth, 
they've all happened in the same chair and room I'm sitting in right now doing this podcast. <laughs> right? I understand that. I understand that. To the reality of the oddity of it is that I certainly know more people in Seattle now because of being at UW and, and doing this program and a host of other you know reasons, just being in Washington longer. But I haven't been able to socially, and, and by that I mean spiritually, emotionally, um, socio-emotionally, capitalize on those relationships and nurture those relationships in, in, a, in a way that feels tangible and wholesome, you know, because it, there's only so much you can do on Zoom. It's true. <laughs> it's really true. And you were talking earlier about, you know, a lot of the impetus to do the Imfun show was to find community and build that's community. Exactly. And I mean, I think that that's what a lot of people, if they don't get into art to do that, they stumble into art or they start doing art and it happens. Mm-hmm. And then that's why you keep doing it. We obviously don't do it for the money. You do it because you Definitely meet people. Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> you do it because oh my you God. people and like you find your people that like make that make life worthwhile. And so I, I completely understand that. And yeah, there has been, I think for a lot of us, just not being able to go to shows, not being able to be with our people. Yeah. It's hard. hard. It is hard. And I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that at some point during the year, 2021, we'll get to like be with our people again. I mean, one, I mean, it is, it was, I mean, there's so many, because I don't want to like doom it all. There's so many beautiful things that have happened as a result of, of COVID. You know, it's kind of like that whole idea of, you know, the enlightenment. Yes. The true, what, what enlightenment really means, not the way it's been yeah. marketed. Not the capitalized. The, the you know, kumbaya, hold hands and sway in the breeze, nothing's wrong with the world <laughs> kind of thing. It's, you know, it's it's a painful enlightenment is a painful birthing process, right? But right. it's so gorgeous when you when you recognize the, the benefits of that surrender and that shift. And and I feel like COVID's definitely been that for me. So I feel like I've had, you know, I mean, in terms of work, like I'm I I I have this wonderful opportunity to help pilot a program at Henry Art Gallery now um, with their new guide program. And this is an institution that I will say on record is trying um, is trying to see how they can reflexively shift their practices internally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I'm, I'm happy to report for the record that I feel safe working there, which has been great. And part of the, the work that I do there is, is training the first cohort of guides for the museum through um, the UW Art School. Teaching this class, and I'm working with these intern guides for a year, and we started last fall. And working with them has been such a huge highlight in the middle of this weird COVID time that we're having, even though, you know, we're all going through it together and, and they are going through it. And it's a cohort of undergrads from UW coming from quite an eclectic academic background. 
some of them are art majors, but others are, you know, working in urban planning and social justice backgrounds. And they all are really busy with doing volunteer work in various organizations. And they're just like fire. Intellectually, they're just fire. I love it. Um, yeah, I mean, but one of the things that's been so gratifying is being able to shape a program with complete latitude without the UW or the Henry telling me how I need to shape my syllabus. They just, they're just like, just do it how you want to do it. That's amazing. <laughs> Which is amazing. That it's is an incredible an incredible thing to be able to say I'm, I've gotten to, I've gotten to experience, you know, I'm so happy for you. And it's, it's just been really delicious because it allows for there to be a far more decentralized and collaborative format to our classes where I, I don't even call them a class. I call them salons and we just come in and we unpack and we critique everything we're talking about in this podcast right now is what we, yes. we, we pedagogically engage every week aside from you know the logistical training of how to be a guide this is not about we're gonna be scripting you or what to say to the public this is about you trusting your subjective criticisms and bringing your own personal experience to bear upon the knowledges that you also will be given when we're talking about current or upcoming exhibitions it is fire I really want to introduce you to my former mentors in the museology program at, at uh, Smith. I want, I want you to go there to the Smith Museum, and I want you to do that in their education department. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I would love it because it's, it's so, because this is what we've been talking about, right? This is, right. It, this is the work is if you, any, any program, even if it's just a, a one departmental program that you're allowing some kind of decentralization to happen, that's going to change things. That's going to change the conversations that museums purport to want to create for their publics. Right? Exactly. So it's, exactly. it's, that's been like a really cool thing, you know, that's, happened that I don't know if that's happened because of the umfon work or just you know just being lucky and <laughs> and having a good interview session <laughs> when yeah. I was applying for the job but <laughs> you know that's been going on and then I've I have I have this other organization that I run with um two two fellow cultural studies um grads from UW um who who went through the same program I did um I started this group called Black Cinema Collective a yes. couple of years ago. Mateo Ochoa and Savita Krishnamurti are um, my fellow organizers. And we have been, again, trying to respond to the COVID moment in how we've been keeping programming going. We started off with a grant from Simpson Center for our first year. Um, and... And then once that grant ended, we just, you know, sort of picked up from there trying to run it ourselves. And we're, we're due to launch a fundraiser soon so that we can keep programming going. But it's been an interesting journey doing that, building that up in everything that's been going on in 2020, trying to handle what it means to run a, a Black organization or collective in this moment when blackness is being fetishized in a way Absolutely. it always has been but in a new way 
Yeah. Um, you know, just looking at what it means to say, okay, we want to educate people on what black filmmakers are, are, are talking about the stories that are being made in not just African-American communities, but within the diaspora, you know, from around the world and what it means to do that responsibly without adding to the fetishization, you know, and it's hard work and it's hard work because like you were talking about, we all have other jobs. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So you know the logistics of it too but that is it's been really exciting to be building that and it's kind of operating under an umbrella company that I started a long time ago but I've just started formalizing it now called Imagine Evolve and it's Imagine Evolve is like an art an intersectional multimedia arts incubator that sort of houses a bunch of different projects that I've done over the years including BCC is now an, an important project into that but we've had like great partnership we've partnered with the Henry we've we've partnered with Northwest Film Forum a number of times three dollar bill cinema we have some partnerships coming up with SIF done work with Langston Hughes like it's it's you know it's been community partnerships that have sort of made us feel like okay we have a place yes. you know, we can fill we can fill a space here let's steady as we go <laughs> see how we, how we can do keep it real we're very transparent about how we operate we check capacities all the time um because we're not trying to kill ourselves while telling everybody else to take care of themselves that doesn't right. make sense you know exactly and trying to look at how how you know decolonial work is not just about happening you know, in white spaces by white people, decolonial work is work for everyone because we're all part of this colonial hangover. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, to borrow a term from my friend, Chris yes. and, Savita. and yeah. we will not say post-colonial. I, no. I will not say no. it. We are we not. not. Oh, we I love not. you for that. I hate that term, even though I understand that that term was birthed out of a particular activism. It, it, it doesn't was. mean what it appears to mean. It, just, it still appears to mean it, so it's hard to say it. It just, I mean, I, I do understand where it came from, and I do understand what the, what the intention was behind it. But I think that, that using that term in particular has just given so much fuel to the, well, we're done with that we're you know we're over we're over it racism is dead like yeah that's what it that's see... what it transports it's it, it that's what it definitely telegraphs and it, it just unfortunately it's but even decolonial is is a contentious term now you know yeah. it's well, because it, it comes it so commodified yeah it it's become commodified it's and who gets to decide right like if i say i'm trying to decolonize my own work then okay but if my work has to do with say I'm studying you know an indigenous artist or I'm studying a, a black artist from the United States or I'm studying a black artist from Africa like who who then does get to decide if my work is actually doing what I say it's doing mm -hmm. and what that means like it just it gets very hairy you know one thing I'm and I have to plug in here too for your listeners yeah. who wants to take this information down there is a 
fantastic video essay. I, I had my um, students watch this too and I've shared it a few times. It is really very, very good for getting us to think about those complicated slippages, mm -hmm. right? The museum will not be decolonized. Um, yes. Have you seen it by Ar Aruara? Yes. And um, that is a true statement as well. <laughs> And, and it is a true statement. And it's it, it, this video essay was made, um, was produced by um, Arwa Abuara. It's on Vimeo. It's based on um, an essay, an article that was written by um, Sumia Kasim. And uh, it is, I think, I feel like everyone who works as a cultural practitioner of any kind should watch this video. Because it, yeah. it it, it right it really takes to task a very it's this is a big job what we're talking about and it is complicated and one of the things that makes it complicated is being able to with a scalpel take out or or identify and find where we who are doing this work are also complicit in the thing we're trying to undo yes difficult difficult, difficult very difficult and and emotional for a lot of people of course yeah of course yeah it's frightening for a lot of people because i, I, I mean yeah. this is where i and i really wanted for us to touch on this and and, and i have have i have my notes of the two things i was going to respond to you about where <laughs> um whiteness was concerned is there are some terms that i just i'm so irritated by because they don't they don't leave room for us examining these slippages is just thinking about privilege yeah privilege has become such a contentious term for me white privilege in particular has become such a contentious term for me because it doesn't leave any room for examining the what what the mythology of whiteness in and of itself hmm. and, and examining what privilege is really and what the delusionment of privilege and what it is that people think they're clinging to. Huh. And what it is people think that they are losing, right? Which prevents them from seeing what they might gain if we release the mythology of whiteness and therefore the mythology of white supremacy. Right. You know, when we use, when we drop these terms, when, I, when I've had white individuals say to me, I understand now my white privilege. It never lands on me well. Well, I don't, and and I know that I've definitely said that in the past to people. Well, I don't know if I was saying it to them as like a demonstrate. It doesn't matter. I've definitely said that in the past, but I don't know that we actually can like fully understand that. I don't know. I have much high expectations. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I really I I think we can try right. I, there's a trying but there's also an examining of language because this this critique that i'm putting on our plate right now is purely about language yeah it's okay. not even about all the other stuff i feel like language it's a limitation in a way but it is our entry point right right and i feel like when someone speaks to holding a particular privilege and starts their 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 road to having some kind of empathy with another human being's experience by asserting that they have this <laughs> sense of supremacy or privilege then how how can you possibly begin to see the person you're speaking to as equal 
Right. And therefore try to put yourself in their shoes. This is already the block. Okay. Now I see you what you're saying. Mean? Okay. It's already I the gotcha. block. Yeah. It's, it's, wait a minute. I'm, I'm realizing how the mythology of whiteness has created some kind of social construction of privilege. But I think the language should be more, let's look at, look at privilege. Everybody, not, I'm not going to say everybody. There's a certain percentage of the world across all of the so-called races that enjoy privileges that can be ascribed to white privilege, irrespective of color. Yeah. I hold the traumas and the pain and the fright. I'm thinking about Bettina Judds talking about her medical, um, the ghosts of medical care in this country. I just went through that. I'm not going to go into it for my, you know, holiday illness, but I just went through that facing that monster, that terror of seeking care in, um, in a white medical um, field when I, I needed care. However, I don't have any actual experiences of being abused in the medical system. I'm not a black person who has had, has suffered all of the things that in my mind and my soul and my spirit, I suffer when I watch the news, when I see the parade of near pornographic black death strewn across the internet in the most indignified manner. It hurts me very deeply and very directly, but I haven't necessarily had those exact experiences. And this is where my standard is. If I can feel that, then I think anyone can feel that. It's just a matter of humanity. Oh, I agree with you. Yeah, I agree. Right? Absolutely. So why I don't accept when any white individual says, I can't fully understand. I don't accept that. I never accept it. <laughs> because, it's, <laughs> because it's not, of course, it's just a human thing. It's, it's either you can, you can recognize suffering or you can't recognize suffering. That's all that's required. Yes, I I totally agree. With that. Not required here. Yeah, for I, that. I think it's also like there are certain things that I can't speak to, right? So as I said, I can yeah, yeah. I can recognize that something is absolutely wrong, that it's horrific, that it should not be happening, that it is inhuman to expect that. Mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. to expect people to deal with that, right? I can recognize all of those things and be hurt by it. Yeah. Like, horrified and upset by it and want to like do something about it but I can't speak of it as if it is my own experience right I can I can talk about it where I can say this is the way that it made me feel and this is why I think that this shouldn't be happening because it's just wrong blah 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 but like yeah as a white person I can't say like Yes, absolutely. Take my word for it because it's not my experience. Right. But I do see what you are saying as well. And I absolutely agree with that. Here's another challenge I'm going to throw out for you and our listeners. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love this. I'm, yeah, I love it. Let's do it. No, because I, because I, I because this is the thing, there are no absolutes in this, right? So it's like, right. I can so totally agree with what you are saying and appreciate that you are saying it because there is, that slippage of, of, of not, of being that white person who's not centering themselves when, when in the midst of, of discourses around um, the trauma of uh, visited upon black people, right? And I appreciate that and therefore, and agree from this point. But there's this other side of this other challenge, 
And and I'm going to rest this a little bit, um, a little bit on the shoulders of Claudia Rankine, who has been making the assertion or the request or asking, questioning why we are not studying whiteness more. Um, you know, she's yeah. the MacArthur Genius Award yes. awardee um, uh, a couple of years ago, and she decided she was going to use some of her money towards studying whiteness, which I was so grateful for when I read that. I'll never forget the night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I'm very interested in this myself, you know, just as a, and, and, and the reason why, just to give a little background, is because of having lived three different Black identities, I understand very much in my constant sense of personhood in this world, how much of a construction and therefore how much this is bullshit. Yeah. Right? Living as a Caribbean black person, living as a um, as an uh, as an African black person, because I grew up in an African household in the Caribbean, so I was an immigrant in the Caribbean. So it's a totally different experience from being right. a, a, a Caribbean-born person, and then coming to America and being an African having an African American experience here, and then of course my experiences in Britain, right? Yes. So. Yes. And every single one of these geographic spaces have shifted the Black experience that I am having, make no mistake, right? And in this country, in America in particular, which I don't have any heritage history in, I've just lived here for all of my adult life, but I don't have any heritage background here. So this is the place where I've been able to examine this better, perhaps, because of a certain kind of distance. Right. In this country, I've come to understand the common colonial trauma held even though America has risen to imperial power in the world. She still suffers very similar um, colonial issues that Jamaica has, that Sierra Leone has, right? This is a place where, like those two other countries I've named, if I am, you know, if I spend enough time in England, my accent lilts back towards that, right? And I've experienced here in America and if I start speaking in that accent, the amount of difference that I'll experience in my daily life, just because I'm speaking like this. Do you understand? Yes. That you. <laughs> ang- anglophonic thing that happens, happens across races in my experience. I'm not speaking prescriptively for anyone else, but just speaking from my experience, I have seen in my black skin, in my dark skin, because I'm not a mixed light skin, you know, person, but I am a multicultural person in black skin. And I've experienced different black experiences because of just how I speak and because of the life I come, the, the mixed heritage I come from right right yes because of this this is where my standard comes into the examination of whiteness right if a white person was to really look at what is happening to black people in this country or in other parts of the world but they also were to examine and research histories of power yes they would understand that that privilege is not doled out evenly among white people. Right. I, it never has been. So when I look at, say, the insurrection that happened last week, <laughs> I tell you quite honestly, Nicole, this is why I'm interested in the study of whiteness. I tell you quite honestly, when I was looking at that insurrection, my first, my first view was not to look, go to the obvious 
oh my God, if this was all black people, they would all be killed. Obviously that happened a nanosecond later because it's so obvious. It was so painfully obvious to everyone. Yes. That that is a fact that that would have been carnage. However, the first thing that struck me was something that has always struck me all the years of living here in America, that the powerful people of this country, the leaders, leadership, the political class have never given a a, a flying shit about their people. And I've said it very overtly. These people don't care about their people. They don't care about their people. No. And that statement comes from, if you have a culture where people don't know who they are, and they have all been stripped of their histories and it's all been overwritten by this philosophy of white supremacy, which is how I like to use that term white supremacy. It has to be followed by or preceded by the word philosophy so mm-hmm. that it's not a given that white supremacy exists. Yes, exactly. Right. And that's all they have as their identity. Yeah. This is a gaslighting method to keep people living in a state of fear, rage, and anger with no outlet other than the lie that they're told that they need to blame me, this new immigrant or this black person for all of the ills that they have. So they are never armed with, are you familiar with the expression, give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, teach him how to fish, he'll eat forever. Yes, yes. If you tell a bunch of people all they ever have to do is exist in their white skin and they never have to do anything else to improve themselves, how happy can such a people be? How secure can such a people be? How privileged are such a people? How upset are such a people therefore going to be when all the other people who have gotten the message loud and clear Work hard, excel at what it is, seek your joy, seek your pleasure, protect yourself, engage in acts of survivance, hold on to your culture, start excelling beyond the people who were told any such thing. Of course, there's going to be anarchy, so collective mental breakdown and insurrections in the capital. What I saw when I was watching that last week was a people as unhappy and as underserved as everybody else. And I was just looking at that through foreigner glasses. Let me, let me make that clear for our listeners. I'm looking at this for having come from a country that went through a coup. That's why I ended up in Jamaica. My father was a political prisoner. I'm just looking at a nation irrespective of what you believe or what color you are. These were not people who were happy. These are not people who feel secure. These are not people who are enjoying what the so-called benefits are of white privilege and white supremacy. These are people who feel like they've lost something. Now, of course, we can all argue they have not lost anything, but they (laughs) don't know that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like this is, this is, these are the complicated, difficult, challenging, infuriating slippages that I think are just as important to discuss. And I agree with you. Yeah, I grew up in the South, right? In the Southern part of the United States, which as we all know. And this is not about coddling them either. I just need no, to throw no, no. out there. Go on. I, I, didn't think, I didn't think that. I didn't think you were saying that. The entire time that I was growing up, there was overt racism in my hometown. There were people who would wear things with the Confederate flag, who would say the N-word, who 
like would just voice their opinion that, you know, white people were just better than black people than anyone else. And they really felt that that was true. Mm -hmm. But if you would ask them why, which I did, they wouldn't have a good answer. It would be just because, just because, like, because, you know, I don't know, maybe because their parents said something, but what really like, what really got me was I was like, okay, so the people that you think are better couldn't even do work themselves and they couldn't pay people to do work. So they had to enslave other people to do work for them because they weren't strong enough to do it or smart enough to do it. And they couldn't pay them because they didn't have the means to do it. So where is the supremacy there? Exactly. But these are all the things. These are, thank you. These are all the things. This is why I'm not a fan of this language, going back to, you know, where, where, what I'm attaching all of this to in terms of addressing language. This right. is what I'm not a fan of simply using the term white privilege or white supremacy without adding a modifier of some kind to remind yeah. us that this is an idea, that this is an invention, this is somebody's imagination that is still playing itself out. It is not a foregone conclusion. And without right. the metaf- m- modifier, it is as if it's a foregone conclusion. And that's why I can't accept it. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And I'm glad you brought that up because I never thought about the modifier for the term white supremacy before. So And white privilege. Yeah. And because, white privilege, yeah. Because, I've, because as a, you know, as a, and all of us have to do this work, yeah? All of us have to look at our privilege. I am a black woman and I have suffered some grave, ridiculous aggressions, microaggressions, injustices, discriminations here. Yes, I have, Right. But I still understand that I also have privilege. And I've met more than enough white people here in my life in America who have no concept of the kind of life that I've, I in my privilege had, who can't construct a sentence, a complex sentence in the English language <laughs> because of the way I can, just because of my, the privilege of education. Right. I've not sat on a plane or traveled to other countries who do not speak other languages. These right. are privileges too, n'est-ce pas? Right. So if this is... Oui, oui, c'est vrai. <laughs> you know? So if, if, if I have had to confront my privilege through the eyes of a person who looks back at me and is recalibrating when they are confronted with that, going, you should not have this knowledge that I don't have. Right. Something wrong with the world. I've, I've watched that strewn across people's faces a number of times. I lived in Atlanta, Georgia for a couple of years too. Oh, wow. Right? <laughs> I understand what that looks like. I understand what it looks like when someone speaks to me on the phone and then meets me in person because they thought that I was white because of the, the, what, the accent they heard. And my name is not, is an androgynous name, right? right? And it doesn't speak to race at all. When people meet me in person, then you watch the recalibration happen on their face. All of that is because of these mythologies. Yes. Because you, if, if you can't just speak to me as a person who has stuff to share, just like you have stuff to share, is because you are trapped by a lie. That's right. Anyone who is trapped by a lie and is their identity is tethered to that lie is a fragile person. Fragile. 
I mean, we saw the fragility play out. We're, we're still seeing it play out in, there have been like a few videos of the fragile and dangerous, fragile and dangerous. But one that I'm specifically thinking of is there's a woman, there's a video of a woman, a white woman crying, who is like stumbling out of the Oh, yes. The one that's for the revolution. Chick. Yes. What's her name? Lord have yes. mercy. She's stumbling out of the hospital <laughs> crying. And somebody interviews her. I have no idea because we never see who has the camera. But they're like, what happened? And she's like, they sprayed me with mace or pepper spray. And they are like, what were you doing? She's like, we were having a revolution. We're going to take over the capital and it's like she's so astounded that something happened to her when they were going to have a revolution and take I, over the capital I, I saw what well, I saw when I watched the video and you know I'm like I understood why the video went around but it was it it really was not one of those videos that was you that I thought was particularly useful you know what I mean because it's like it's well the, it's the reason that I Freud moment of ha 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 this Well, it it wasn't even that for me. It was the fact that like, I think you're right in a lot of ways that these people are not happy, that they don't feel that they have privilege. But on some level, they know that they have some level of privilege because of how surprised she was that something happened. Oh, yeah. That that is what it was for me. Like, yes, I, I did find it funny that, you know, that she... I did find it funny that she was so surprised, but it also was such a wake up, N- not even a wake up. It, it was just it put it together for me. Artifact of, of, of proof. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It put it together. I was like, this is what you thought. And yes, there it is. Like that they, they honestly thought that like nothing would happen to them, that they would go and take over the Capitol and like kidnap and, and, and kill and, and, Congress and, people. Yeah. And nothing would happen to them. And like they honestly thought that because they were white. And that that is that is the scariest thing to me. That the they think they that, can kill with impunity. Yes, they can. But yeah, but then but but this going back to to the political class, right? And the political class not caring about them, the political class right. setting up that thinking for them. Yes. Right? Because exactly. the political class was inside frightened and having to be ushered to safe safe um safe safe retreats while still thinking this can't be happening i can't believe this is happening surely this is not going to be out of hand and then showing up with their 192 nays on the on the impeachment vote yep right so so this is this is this is one of those things of what i wish for nicole and i can't wait and i hope it happens in my lifetime is to see white people come to this conversation where they, 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 they have looked into these slippages enough for themselves. Don't do it for me. I know what's going on. Right. As a Black person, I know what's going on. For themselves to understand where the blame really lies and that these people will hold on to power at the sacrifice of their followers' lives. Yes. Ergo, those same insurrectionists. For, the, for white people to come to understand that is what I'm living to see. Because that's when the whole white supremacy, white privilege, white fragility, all of these, these double-barreled white 
blah, blah, blah terms <laughs> that, that actually serve to, to separate the issue more rather than to, to unify it can go away, that we can graduate. And I, I just wanna, it would be interesting to see America graduate into adulthood. I would love to see us graduate into adulthood. We have a lot of work to do. It's a lot of work. But I mean, one thing that I am, and I, it's so hard to say this because it's so like, it's hard to, to say this without being misunderstood. And so I pray I won't be misunderstood here. But again, I have to offer my subjective lens, you know, being a child of parents who, who survived political unrest and had to flee a country because of that. I've been reading the shorthand, you know, I mean, Sierra Leone just had a civil war um, um, in the, that ended in the early 2000s. So recently, again, I mean, there's been so much that's gone on in, in, in my birthland. I've been reading the shorthand of America stepping to this for a long time, Nicole. Absolutely. Like a long time. Yeah. Like, like since... 2007, when the price of wheat and milk went up, and then the crash happened. Following your, I, mean, you know I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, some of us were looking at when George Bush, <laughs> all the way back to George Bush, to 9/11, yeah, to 9/11, all the way back to that. From my apartment on the Upper East Side, all the way down town to go and photograph the ash, right? Yeah. And I remember being on my Nextel <laughs> Motorola <laughs> with my mother talking about, wow, look at this now. You think America will learn about this, about what, what the world feels about them now? Do you think this no. burst the bubble? And this is almost 20 years ago. Well, it is 20 years ago. This is 20 years ago. Anniversary to this year. And, but right? no. And that, that was what so many of us were wondering. I mean, I, I was 20. Yeah, I was 20 years old. And I, one of the first things I said was, so does this mean that we're going to like pull troops out of other places? Because obviously, you know, exactly. unhappy, like, d- but no, we went in the other direction. No, we went in the full on other direction. Other direction. Fast forward and, now to where we are. And yeah. so as soon as, you know, they were passing the Patriot Act, there was all of the the Iraq war scandal. Like even when they were talking about those things, I was like, this is not going to end well. Like this, them getting people amped up to go invade countries for no reason at all, really. Um, and except to like, gain no more power. Internal reflection at all. Right. None. 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 And I was like, this is just, this is taking us down a bad path. And guys, here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Here we are. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, so, oh God. But I think we can come, but I, you know what, I think, and I don't want to say we can come back because honestly, I don't want to go back. back? Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to go back, but I feel like we can do something new and we can go forward and we can be better. I think, and I believe that, I really believe that in order to come to the place of, of an open, a really useful and an and actionable imagination of how to re, you know, remake ourselves forward is, is to be able to look at, at the harshest part of the truths and looking at our complicity. I think yeah. that's the only way it's going to happen. 
Absolutely. Because until that, I think. Yep. I agree with you. And I think that is an amazing place to end. I can't believe that we've been talking for two hours. Have we? Oh my we God. We have. <laughs> I know. Time flies when you're getting into it. <laughs> wow. Wow. about my work that's so Um, (laughs) (laughs) but before we before we go though um one I want to thank you so much for your time because I I've just I've really been wanting to talk to you and I'm so glad we finally got to and also I would love for you to throw out your your website and your maybe your Instagram where can people find you if they want to keep up with what you're doing so I, I, I probably shouldn't start with a statement of I'm sorry, I'm so bad at social media, but <laughs> I really am not that great at it, but I, I, I engage it on occasion. Um, so um, you can find me at, um, at Barrett McCauley on Instagram, um, at Sebi Art on, on Twitter, and, and also you can find me at my website www.barrettmccauley.com and there's also black cinema collective is also on by that name on instagram and facebook and online blackcinemacollective.org and finally my imagineevolve.org where you can see other projects that i've done under that umbrella um yeah that's where you can find me fantastic <laughs> fantastic i have to plug this I oh do- yeah go for it I have a article coming out that I wrote with um, Savita Krishnamurti coming out in the Feminist um, Media Histories next journal, first week of February. And it's a piece that we wrote on Zainabu Irene Davis, who's one of the LA Rebellion, famed LA Rebellion filmmakers. And yeah, we had a great opportunity to speak with her and do... um, an interview about her work. She's been having sort of a renaissance moment of attentions to her body of work, as have all of the LA Rebellion filmmakers. And so it was a really timely moment to be able to write about her work and to engage her. And we actually co-partners in screening her documentary about the LA Rebellion movement, um, which by the way, that is also a contentious term. Not all of the filmmakers out of the 60s through the 80s at the UCLA film program um, like to fall under that moniker but yeah we worked with the henry art gallery last february before covid um to screen her film spirits of rebellion um and i had the the pleasure and privilege of being able to take the stage with her to um to talk to her about the film um at the henry art gallery auditorium so yeah so that's coming out soon Yay! Yay! I'm so excited. Brad, thank you again so much. You, this has just been a really lovely conversation. And I'm just, I just really appreciate you being just open and yeah, getting into it with me. <laughs> well, I, well I, I appreciate you're a very, very good moderator. Like really, really great. And um, oh, thank you. Keeping us on point and, and being open. Yeah. To, to just, really digging in and examining difficult, difficult stuff. I mean, you know, they're difficult things. And I think that, I think for anyone, they're, they're difficult subjects. Right. But I also think like, it's so worth it. 
It's a, well, we, yeah, it is it's so worth it. Work. We have to do it because, you know, something we can't leave each other. We're all on this planet together. That's right. We're all in this. We have together. to sort it out. <laughs> we got to figure out our shit. Yes, we do. <laughs> we got to do it. <laughs> do it. You know. All right. Well, you have a wonderful rest of your weekend and thank you so much. Thanks again. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Take care of yourself. Thank you. You take care of yourself well. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. For more information about Barrett McCauley and her work, go to barrettmacaulay.com, B-E-R-E-T-T-E-M-A-C-A-U-L-A-Y. Dot com at Brett McCauley on Instagram, imagineevolve.org, I-M-A-G-I-N-E-E-V-O-L-V-E.org, and at Subbyart, at S-E-B-I-Art on Twitter. As always, you can find us on criticalbounds.com and at criticalboundspodcast on Instagram as well as SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for tuning in.